snow science. One measure of snowpack, the amount of snow on the ground that tends to stick around for a while, building up layer by layer, one measure of that snowpack is what is called snow water equivalent, or SWE. SWE gauges the amount of water in terms of depth that the snow would turn into if it melted in its entirety, and that's achieved by calculating the snow height in meters times the vertically integrated density of the snow in terms of kilograms per cubic meter. So scientists use that formula to compute how much water will be generated as the snowpack melts, and this is important because it gives folks in areas where snow accumulates a sense of how much water to expect at some point in the future. And this is especially vital in areas with nearby mountain ranges, as snow tends to accumulate more enthusiastically at higher elevations, and because snowmelt will then tend to flow down these mountain ranges to pass through or accumulate in lower-lying areas. In practice, this means that snowpack can serve as a water reservoir, holding onto water that will run into other aquifers and into the ground at some point in the future. But it also means there's an inherent flood risk for those areas, as too much melt of too much snow too quickly can lead to flooding. These are especially important numbers to get right in California right now, as the state has accumulated one of its largest ever snowpacks on record, with a depth of 126 and a half inches, which is more than twice, about 221%, the average snowpack this time of year. Recent record-setting wetness this winter helped ease the region's long-lasting mega-drought, which has been nice for normal citizens and for agricultural interests in the area, of which there are many. But that niceness could become something else entirely when this snowpack melts, if it melts too quickly all at once. A trickle of snowmelt is good and desirable then, but a big snowmelt of snowpack this historically deep and dense would be a bit like turning on a fire hose when all you want is a sip of water. Too much of a good thing. And again, California is already more moist than it's been in a while, in the wake of 17 atmospheric river weather corridors rushing through the area since December of 2022. Atmospheric rivers being waves of highly compressed moisture in the atmosphere that carry larger than average amounts of water, in some cases popping into an area, sitting around for a while, and just deluging that area with rainfall, often causing floods and other such issues. That has happened in California this year 17 times already, which is just wild and unusual, and that has topped up many water storage facilities while also increasing long-depleted groundwater reserves, which is good. The concern is that these currently somewhat wonderful conditions, water-wise at least, will tip over into something a lot less wonderful if this snowpack melts rapidly, which it looks, based on current projections at least, likely to do. More water in these reservoirs and in the ground means less of a gap between nice levels of water staving off drought and too much water flooding areas that would prefer not to be flooded. What I'd like to talk about today is one of the climactic forces making that potentiality of floods throughout California from melting snowpack more likely, and what it might mean, larger scale and globally, for the next several years of weather happenings. Thank mm -hmm. you.
You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The El Nino Southern Oscillation, often shortened to ENSO, is a variable pattern of winds and sea surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean. This pattern is influential enough over the weather conditions, including the temperatures, but also rainfall across the tropics and subtropics, that we've come to basically personify it over the years, labeling one phase of this oscillation El Nino, which refers to a period of higher air pressure at sea level in the western Pacific, while the opposite, a period of lower air surface pressure in the region, is called La Nina. This periodic system is the result of what's called the Walker Circulation, which is basically a label for a collection of elements like trade winds, the movement of colder deep-sea ocean water to the surface, and other such variables, and how their cyclical interactions influence all sorts of environmental conditions in the Pacific and adjacent areas, but also globally, because of how all these variables worldwide are intertwined with each other. There is a neutral phase of this system alongside the El Nino and La Nina phases, and the processes that define each of these three phases over time triggers the conditions necessary to flip over into another phase, though that flipping usually takes somewhere between a few years to upward of seven years to fully manifest the necessary volume of change that then justifies a new label. The last El Nino period we saw was in 2016, and it was a brief one, preceded by two years of neutral conditions and followed by three years of the same, from 2017 to 2020. 2021 and 2022 were La Nina years, which means, among other things, the temperature of the surface of the ocean has tended to be cooled these past few years by upward circulating deep sea waters. So what we measure at the surface of the ocean in terms of average temperatures have been cooler than whatever the default would have otherwise been as a result of other variables because of that upswelling of colder water from lower down in the water column. That's important to note here because although El Nino conditions have not been locked in and confirmed yet, scientists have tracked a new record high Pacific Oceanic surface temperature that is basically just really alarming. First because it's an increase when we would typically be measuring a decrease but also because it suggests that in addition to the ocean temperature rising worryingly rapidly and doing so for over a month past the point where it would typically start cooling down, it also hit this new record level during a period, the La Nina period that we are still in, in which water temperatures are being kept cool by those deep sea waters that are being pulled to the surface. The implication, then, is that the record high temperatures we are seeing on the ocean surface right now is just a taste of what we will see when that cooling effect from La Nina disappears. And it could get even worse when El Nino effects fall into place more officially, which they are expected to do soon, because surface temperatures tend to peak, hitting fresh high temperature spikes throughout the Pacific at least twice. And those spikes are even more intense in the far eastern equatorial portion of the Pacific, the effects of which then ripple outward to other nearby regions. So the ocean surface temperature is already very high, it's expected to get even higher soon, and during this impending El Nino period, which looks likely to descend on us soon, there are spikes on top of the on average higher temperatures we can expect. 
It's thought that El Nino effects of this kind may have killed off several Mesoamerican cultures in the pre-colonialization period by messing with their climactic norms and triggering a wave of bad crop yields. It's also thought that El Nino's impact might have sparked or contributed to the French Revolution by causing poor crop yields in Europe in the late 18th century causing people to take big revolutionary risks because there wasn't much left to lose. They were basically on starvation rations from a bad period of crop yields. El Nino has caused famines in Southeast Asia to Africa to Latin America, and those famines, typically caused by drought, are usually then counterbalanced by waves of deadly flooding in other parts of the world. And this is something we've known about since the late 19th century, when these seemingly connected and opposing weather patterns were first noticed and documented. But despite being able to put the pieces together much more accurately today, because of all our fancy tracking tools and satellite data, we're still only imperfectly able to map out the impact of these systems, especially when they change in unpredictable, previously unseen ways. That inability is part of what is making this new sea surface temperature data so alarming. We can see that it is happening, and that unto itself is worrying, because disruption of temperature norms at any depth can lead to mass die-offs of the species that live at those levels. But this is even more disconcerting because those immediate effects might not be the last word here. This might be just a taste of what we will experience over the next year or two or more, as already rising temperatures, seemingly the consequence of human-amplified climate change, is exaggerated by a cyclical, weather-inducing atmospheric pattern that could further elevate those effects, perhaps dramatically. Those die-offs would be worrying unto themselves, as historically, and I'm talking a long time ago, this sort of pattern is part of what led to mass extinctions of species that up till that point were flourishing. Changes to our atmospheric composition that then lead to a change in temporary conditions or a wholesale change in long-term norms can be just as destructive to life that has evolved to flourish within certain temperature bands as an asteroid impact. But this is also worrying because higher oceanic temperatures means more ice melt globally, and that's especially true of some of the world's most vital ice reserves that keep water tucked away in glaciers and ice caps, and which, when they melt, can minutely or dramatically increase global ocean levels, whittling away at already diminishing coastal areas that are being depleted by this rise and by increasingly severe weather like floods and hurricanes, which cause ocean waters to surge inland a whole lot more frequently, if usually only temporarily. Each tiny increase in water elevation, though, means it takes less flooding to lose more and more land. You don't have to be underwater 100% of the time for a region to be unlivable because it floods anytime there's even a small bit of rain, or land that disappears a handful of times a year when there's a hurricane of sufficient size. These sorts of storms are becoming more common and more intense, too, as sea surface temperature levels rise, in part because such storms are empowered, gaining more energy, essentially, by the heat in the water they pass over. Warm water is a bit like a battery for storm systems moving overhead, charging them up and up and up until they get bigger and bigger and longer lasting. So warmer oceans means more frequent and powerful hurricanes and other storms, which means less livable coastal areas, in addition to the agriculture-killing impact of these systems essentially pulling a lot of moisture into some areas and denying other areas any moisture at all. 
That latter effect is what leads to El Nino-associated droughts in some parts of the world, while other parts see nothing but flooding and storms. More extremes in more areas more of the time, and fewer parts of the world that enjoy a nice, livable balance. One more concern being explored by researchers right now is the possibility that this oceanic heating period will lead to more common and deadly waves of disease throughout many parts of the world. More volatile precipitation means more toxic algae, harmful bacteria, and disease-spreading mosquitoes and other such pests in more regions. Higher temperatures across more climactic bands means more areas are prone to these sorts of dangers and pests for longer periods each year, and higher instances of disease and other debilitating issues, like heat stroke, tend to weaken medical systems by putting increased strain on them, which then amplifies other health-related issues, like our capacity to handle heart attacks and cancer. We just don't have as many resources, human and otherwise, to throw at all the things that can go wrong when there is additional significant strain on these systems, as we saw pretty clearly in most parts of the world at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. This concern is backed by research that looked at the impacts of El Nino amplified conditions on infectious disease rates in Brazil and Venezuela back in 2003. The study looked at more than a dozen cycles between El Nino, La Nina, and neutral conditions and found that there was a significant increase in malaria rates in these areas, dating all the way back to 1899, during and following El Nino waves. Warm, moist conditions allow mosquitoes to reproduce faster and more successfully and to increase their range of operation, so this data makes sense. It lines up with the general hypothesis that such periods amplify the impact of these sorts of disease vectors. There does seem to be a point at which mosquitoes have more trouble, though. Basically, when the rains are so bad that flooding washes away all their eggs, disallowing mass reproduction. So there's a chance that conditions like those in California currently might be better in some ways than less extreme versions of the same, because the flooding could wipe out some pests though that wipeout would also seriously harm infrastructure and people and other elements of the local ecosystem. So such a victory, if we want to call it that, would probably be a Pyrrhic one. The main concern for many scientists working in this space right now, though, is that aforementioned new record-high sea-level temperature that's been going up and up and up for the past nearly two months, surpassing all previous recorded temperatures for any time of year in any previous year, and seemingly doing this before the arrival of the ocean surface temperature-increasing effects of a fresh El Nino period. Usually, we would be seeing a period of temperature decline in these surface waters this time of year, so this deviation from the historical norm and all available data about it is alarming, to say the least. One theory is that this increase is a tipping point moment for global warming, because oceans absorb more heat than land, soaking up about 90% of the excess energy and heat planetary warming has caused thus far. So this might be the consequence of all the greenhouse gases we've put into the atmosphere since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, the world heating up, and it's actually heated up more than we thought, but a lot of that heat has been soaked up by the ocean, hidden until just now. So we're only just now seeing the impact of that waterborne heat energy, which was, until now, inconspicuously tucked away deeper in the ocean. 
Another theory is that the larger climate system, that pattern of variables that moderates weather conditions in the Pacific and consequently around the world, might itself be changing. Which is also alarming, as this is another system that we have worked very hard to track and upon which many of our weather-related understandings are predicated, including the way that we've organized our civilizations up till this point. So if it begins to change shape and temperament, that would significantly disrupt our ability to predict weather patterns and understand new norms, and would likely lead to disruptions of normal social functioning, which in turn would substantially truncate our capacity to determine where to plant things, where to build things, and how to continue to function at a modern level of comfort in a suddenly less recognizable world while we simultaneously struggle to deal with the more immediate, on-the-ground realities of surviving and thriving in a more temperamental, natural disaster-prone period. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Song of the Cell, An Exploration of Medicine and the New Human by Siddhartha Mukherjee. I picked up this book because I enjoyed Mukherjee's first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize and a bunch of other accolades, deservedly, I think. And that book was about cancer. Uh, he is an oncologist himself by trade, in addition to being a, an excellent author. This book is about cells more broadly. And cells are fascinating. They are our smallest functional and structural unit. And he does a very good job of explaining why the cell is at the focus of a lot of new technologies that are coming of age and beginning to come of age. We're getting the first glimpse of them right now in 2023 including things like cellular therapy, but also why the cell is an interesting unit to focus on, separate from the other things that he's looked at, like cancer-related elements, mutations, in that first book, and then also DNA, which is what he focused on in his second book, The Gene, which was also very good and very fascinating. And all of these different focuses of his play together. They're all interconnected in various ways. But cell biology tends to get a lot less focus in the scientific press, and it's celebrated a lot less in our fiction and the stories that we tell as well than things like genetics. Genetic science is something that we've discussed in a pop-cultural way a lot more enthusiastically over the past several decades, whereas cellular therapies are similar in some senses in terms of their potential and capacity to dramatically change the way that we do medicine in particular, but they haven't been as thoroughly explored, especially in the narrative sense and in the storytelling way that Mukherjee addresses them in this book, despite it still being a very informative nonfiction work. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Song of the Cell by Siddhartha Mukherjee. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.